Deuteronomy 10, page 212 of your Pew Bibles. Matthew Henry, in commenting on this chapter, says, Moses, having in the foregoing chapter reminded them of their own sin as a reason why they should not depend upon their own righteousness, in this chapter he sets before them God's great mercy to them, notwithstanding their provocations, as a reason why they should be more obedient for the future. Here now the reading of the word of Almighty God, Deuteronomy 10, starting at verse 1. At that time the Lord said unto me, Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first, and come up unto me into the mount, and make thee an ark of wood. And I will write on the tables the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest, and thou shalt put them in the ark. And I made an ark of shittim wood, and hewed two tables of stone like unto the first, and went up into the mount, having the two tables in mine hand. And he wrote on the tables, according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord spake unto you in the mount out of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them unto me. And I turned myself and came down from the mount and put the tables in the ark which I had made, and there they be as the Lord commanded me. And the children of Israel took their journey from Beeroth of the children of Jaakan to Moserah. There Aaron died, and there he was buried. And Eleazar his son ministered in the priest's office in his stead. From thence they journeyed unto Gudgodah, and from Gudgodah to Jotbath, a land of rivers of waters. At that time the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister unto him, and to bless in his name unto this day. Wherefore Levi hath no part nor inheritance with his brethren. The Lord is his inheritance, according as the Lord thy God promised him. And I stayed in the mount according to the first time forty days and forty nights. And the Lord hearkened unto me at that time also. And the Lord would not destroy thee. And the Lord said unto me, Arise, take thy journey before the people, that they may go in and possess the land, which I swear unto their fathers to give unto them. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes which I command thee this day for thy good. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth, earth also with all that therein is. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. For the Lord your God is God of gods, and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment, Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. 
Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God. Him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave and swear by his name. He is thy praise, and he is thy God, that hath done for thee these great and terrible things which thine eyes have seen. Thy fathers went down into Egypt with threescore and ten persons, and now the Lord thy God hath made thee as the stars of heaven for multitude. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word from Deuteronomy chapter 10. Notice here in outline form, verses 1 through 5, we have the mentioning of God's favor and reconciliation to them. They were never to forget these favors that God had showed them and the renewing of the tables of the covenant. Verse 1 mentions at that time. Now in context, this would be the end of chapter 9. And you'll remember there, God had threatened to destroy the people. And Moses had prayed on their behalf that God would remember his testament. The promises made to the fathers descended down to the children. He reminded God of his glory and how the Egyptians would say the only reason that you brought these people out was to destroy them because you hated them. So he reminds the Lord of God's great promises and of the glory of his name. And God hearing as a mediator uh, in Moses, he forgave the sins of the people. Moses is commanded in verse 1, Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first, and come up unto me into the mountain, make thee an ark of wood. We would call this later in the scriptures the ark of the testament. It's where God's great promise was given. In fact, the word propitiation is used for the mercy seat, the heliosterion, the place where atonement was made for their sins is on the top of this ark. Now, the time at which God says to make these two tables of stone is after the intercession of Moses, the pardon of their sins. Now God's going to give them his law. Gospel mercy precedes the giving of the law. The giving of the Ten Commandments is rooted in the grace and redemption that God has accomplished. And even here, in the renewal of the Ten Commandments, the intercession of a priest, namely Moses. So I note then that the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant, in itself is not a, a covenant of works. Rather, it is an administration, as our confession rightly says, an administration of the covenant of grace, of God's mercy, of his forgiveness, though in types and in shadows, yet the gospel was preached to them as it is to us. God says, verse 2, I will write on the tables the words that were in the first tables, which thou breakest. God writes this with his finger, by his power, demonstrating the difference between the Ten Commandments and all of the other laws published through prophets, namely, in this case, through Moses himself. Now, God superintended, God inspired, God directed, God gave thoughts, God gave words, God gave motion even to the hands of Moses. It was all the word of God, but this was a particularly special law, the law of the Ten Commandments. He mentions this in verse 4. This is where we get the phrase, the Ten Commandments. This phrase is also used in Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 4, and here as well. The Ten Words, the Ten Doctrines, the Ten Truths, the Ten Commandments, the basic and complete list of moral categories 
What are the basic duties that God requires? Well, here they are. They're in Ten Commandments. It is not a full and exhaustive list, but it is a sum of the whole. It says in verse 4 that the Lord gave them unto me. This is the word where we get Nathan, the name Nathan from. It means to give something as an act of grace. God graciously gave these words unto Moses. This is a conveyance of a testament, a gift of grace. The law is our inheritance. It's part of what God has designed in our salvation. And notice verse 5, he put the tables in the ark which Moses had made. The ark, as I mentioned, of the testament, where the mercy seat would be placed on top, the angels symbolically representing the presence of God himself, God enthroned on the mercy seat. These commandments are, you might say, hidden under the mercy of God. The thing that comes between the law and its rigor and the people is God seated on the seat of his atonement, on the seat of propitiation, where the intercessor would go once a year and sprinkle blood, representing the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Ark of the Testament. Now, the covenant of grace we are taught in our confession is frequently set forth in the scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. We have the same in the Old Testament. There is the death of the lamb to release them out of bondage. Then there is the goods that God keeps saying he's giving to them, this land. Then there are the heirs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their children. All these things, God says, I will be your inheritance. This is God's testament. Let us then properly understand the Ten Commandments as God intended. Not as man perverted them into a system of self-righteousness, as the Jews did, but as God intended. God gives gospel grace. The mediator comes and prays for the deliverance from sin. Then the law is published. Let us not turn God's law into a covenant of works, as the Jews did, or as those who are Christianized Jews now do, by saying that we cooperate with the grace of God by keeping his commandments, and by love, faith is made perfect and our justification is finalized. This is the Christianized version of Judaism. Let us rather rejoice that God is our Savior, that he has redeemed us, that he has accepted our mediator, forgiven our sins, and now gives us his law graciously as our inheritance. Keep God's law written upon your hearts by the very same finger that wrote on these two tables of stone. Verses 6 through 11, we have orders for the march to Canaan, the choosing of Levi as God's own tribe, the continuing of Aaron's priesthood, and the accepting of Moses' intercession. Notice God in verse 6 gave, gave a succession, Eleazar, the son of Aaron. He ministers in the place of his father after his death. We must pray that God would give successions in his church, those who would carry on the work of the gospel, in the ministry of the gospel, but also in the pews, 
in the worship of Almighty God, in the living day-to-day our lives for the glory of God, that this faith would pass on to the next generation. Let us pray to that end. Notice the point of the Levitical priesthood, verse 8, to stand before the Lord to minister unto him and to bless in his name. This word before the Lord means before his face. To stand in his presence is what he's referring to. Then it says that they would minister. This is the idea of public service. It comes from the word for slavery or servitude. God is the master. We are the slaves. We serve him. We minister unto him. This is the idea of worship. Then it says that they would bless the people in the name of God. Now, there are two ways in which they blessed the people. They did good to them. That's the idea of blessing, where you speak good to someone. One is that the law was to be sought at their lips. They taught the people the scriptures. That was a blessing. They would also pronounce according to the benediction prescribed by God for Aaron and his sons a specific blessing, praying for, wishing a blessing on the people who had worshipped God and learned his word. I note then that church worship, as we have it in the New Testament, is basically the same as the old We might have different rites and ceremonies imposed by God's supreme and sovereign will, but it's the same basic structure. We come into the presence of God through our great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, not through a priest on the earth, but through Christ himself, the heavenly priest. We come into his presence. We serve him publicly, doing those acts that he has prescribed, and then God blesses us that we may know his will and that we may be sent forth to serve in his name. This is exactly what they had in the Old Testament. Let us then delight in the solemn worship of God and see our worship not through the lens of the specific rites of the Old Covenant, but that we worship the same God in spirit and in truth, and we have the very same stamp in our worship that they had in theirs. Coming to God's presence serving him publicly and being blessed in his word through the benediction as well as through the learning of God's word. But we are much more privileged in the new covenant. Our form of worship is much simpler and yet filled with greater efficacy and glory for God. Then he says of Levi verse 9 that the Lord is his inheritance. Other tribes got wealth, land, cattle, all the good things of this life, Levi got God himself. We are to be like the Levites, Scripture tells us. We are to have God for our inheritance. The spirit of the living God is given to us as a down payment, as an earnest of our inheritance, we're taught. Christ is the heir of God. We are joint heirs together with him. Let us, as the Levites, take the Lord for our inheritance Notice verse 10, as I mentioned, the Lord hearkened unto Moses at that time also, and the Lord would not destroy thee, he says to Israel. This is the same with with our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it that we are not destroyed for our sins? Because God has accepted our mediator, has hearkened unto his requests on our behalf, and therefore we are delivered. And then notice... Verse 11, that they may go in and possess the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. This is testamental language again. They are to possess as in an inheritance, to succeed, to pass on from father to son. That's what this verb means in the Hebrew. 
God swear in testament that he would give as a gracious gift. Again, that word Nathan. Just as God gave Moses the Ten Commandments graciously, so he'll give them the land graciously. Then in verses 12 through 22, God infers the obligation to fear, to love, and to serve him. And he presses this upon them in light of his mercy. All these mercies I've showed you, he says, pile up as obligations on your part to fear me, to love me, to serve me, and to do my holy will. An inference is where someone draws a conclusion from previous premises. These premises of my mercy, he says, logically lead to your obedience. And we see this in Romans 6. The abundant grace of God does not lead us to be licentious. It leads us to slavery, to righteousness. Verse 12, and now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? That's a good question, isn't it? What am I to do? What am I obliged to give back to God? What is it he requires of me? He says, but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. God has received our mediator. He's been gracious and merciful. He's pardoned our sins. He's secured our inheritance. What then should we do? Fear him, love him, serve him? This is what God says. He gives promises, and on the ground of those promises, he gives precepts. God gives us his gospel, the good news of our salvation, and then he gives us his law, the duty that he requires of us. This is the way of the gospel, doctrine before duty, promises before precepts, gospel before law. Notice verse 13, God in his mercy says that all these obedience duties are for thy good. Not only is it good in itself, but it is good for us, he says. God has designed his commandments for our benefit. Now, they're also glorifying and pleasing to him. They're also good in, its, in themselves. And there are commandments that even though God may say, well, it's neither good nor bad in itself, but I require you to do it. That is good too, to submit to his will, good in itself. And yet, it's also, he says, for thy good. You will have what? A good conscience, won't you? You will have prosperity, he says, blessings and curses, as we'll see in chapter 11. God willing, next week. God has designed to prosper, to bless, to build us up, to cause us to live according to the created order that he originally designed. And that our first father, Adam, defaced by his sin, now God said, this is for your good. Keep my commandments. Be what I designed you to be. And be blessed with a good conscience and prosperity so far as it shall serve for my glory even in this life. Sin brings misery. Obedience brings blessings. Then notice verse 14 and 15. The Lord says, The heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also and all that therein is. Then he says in verse 15, Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them. And choose their seed. Why does he mention his creation of all things? 
He's saying, I am the universal sovereign of all things. I rule over all. Do I owe you anything? No. And yet, he says, I had a delight in thy fathers to love them and to choose them. This is the doctrine of unconditional election. God owes us nothing. We owe him everything. And he, as a sovereign Lord, could pass us all by and say, all of you deserve to die. I will not receive any of you. And yet, God has chosen a people. He has singled his people out, called them by name, delighted in and loved them, and therefore he chose them. Therefore, verse 16, he says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, And be no more stiff-necked. Election then leads us to repentance. To us mortifying the old man and putting off that which is beastly and brutish and foolish in ourselves. God's election does not lead men to idleness, to disobedience, to presuming upon the grace of God. No, the Bible never uses election that way. Wicked men use election that way. The Jews use election that way. The papists accuse us of using election in that way. But God never says that. God chooses us to be a holy people unto the Lord. Notice verse 17. The Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God and a mighty and a terrible Now, weren't we just talking about God's love? Wasn't God just discoursing about his mercy and the forgiveness of their sins? His grace in choosing and calling and loving their fathers? Why does he bring up the terror of the Lord in light of this? Well, it's very simple. I want you to memorize this phrase, write it indelibly upon the tablets of your heart. Grace perfects nature. Grace does not abolish nature. Let me say that again. Grace perfects nature. Grace does not abolish nature. Now what do I mean? God's nature is that he is supreme. He is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. He is a great God. He is mighty in power. He is a terror to all who would do evil. That's his nature. But his grace does not set that aside. The fact that he is a merciful God in the gospel does not mean he is unrighteous. The Muslims say, God is great. God is merciful. He forgives our sins. Well, how is that so? On what basis does Allah forgive the sins of his people? Same could be said to the Jews. The blood of a lamb. You know, the lambs, you don't even spill their blood anymore. Somehow your sins are going to be forgiven. How? Well, they have no basis, do they? There is no payment that's been made to his justice. There is no satisfaction for God's nature. What do we have in the gospel? Well, we have a satisfaction of God's justice, don't we? We have not the abrogation of God's natural justice. We have the satisfaction of God's justice joined with his mercy. This is good news. Grace perfects nature. Let us then reject all heresies, not merely Islam and Judaism, but all those sub-Christian heresies that say grace abolishes or gobbles away at nature. Let me give you some examples. 
Should women be pastors? No, no why not? It's out of God's word, but it's also contrary to the order of nature. So the heretics say, well, in Christ, man and woman are abolished, right? We're all equally justified. There, there's neither male nor female, right? Right. Does that abolish the created order that God made? No. But heretics say it does. What about this? Jesus has become incarnate, therefore we can make images of God, God the Son. We'll make images of him. We'll bow to those images, but we won't really worship. We'll call it something other than worship. Is that the gospel grace that God designs in the Bible? Of course not. What about this? We have a fish on our church sign that has little rainbow colors. What does that mean? God's okay with sodomy now because love is love, baby. God objects to his Old Testament and says, oh, that was when I was a terror to evildoers. Now I'm just so sweet and accepting of just as you are, rainbow fishianity. What about communism? Oh, God used to say, thou shalt not steal. You have your things and I have mine. But now the gospel grace says, get rid of that mine and yours language. It's all ours. We are one together. We all own it together. Did you know that pacifism says, well, you used to have the right to defend yourself and to take life, but now, nope. Grace abolishes Nature. That's what the heretics say. That's what they say in heathenism. That's what they say in Islam and Judaism, Roman Catholicism, feminism, all of these ideologies, communism, sodomy. Why do they say this? Oh, I can fornicate. We'll just try each other out for a little bit. Seventh commandment doesn't mean much anymore. After all, Jesus died on the cross. Love, 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 baby. All you need is love. <clears throat> Incorrect. God says, I am the Lord. I'm a terrible God. I chose your fathers and loved them. I'm the God of gods. I am mighty and terrible and still gracious and merciful. My gospel does not abolish my nature, God says. But notice also, verse 17, in the same vein, which regardeth not persons nor taketh reward. You may be chosen by God, but if you live like the heathen, I will judge you like the heathen, God says. I'm not going to say, well, he's descended. I'm going to receive his person. Literally means to receive your face. What do you look like? Do you look like Jacob? Well, if you look like Jacob and have the right facial features, I'll set aside my justice in your case. Is that what God says? No. If you don't bear the family image, you'll be judged like the bastards on the outside who pretend to be sons but are no sons. He will judge his people if they do not bear the family image. You may be formally of the stamp of God, descended from a godly stock, but that's not going to do you any good, he says. I'm not a respecter of persons. I don't take a reward. You can't bribe me into not judging you if you're wicked and sinful. 
And so God requires of his people not merely a formal or external allegiance to him, but rather to bear in the impress of their soul, in the daily life that they live, in the worship they offer to God, holiness unto the Lord. He tells them in verse 19, as another instance of this, Love ye therefore the stranger. I've shown you mercy, now you show mercy. You've been helpless and oppressed. Therefore, do not oppress others, but help those who are in need. Be kind, merciful, and generous. Isn't that how God is? Haven't you received the mercy of God? Then give the mercy of God, he says. Fear the Lord thy God, verse 20. God gives them a short list of duties. Love the stranger, fear the Lord thy God, that is to give reverence, honor, and obedience. Him shalt thou serve, he says, not just fear internally, but external actions of service, bowing, prostrating yourself, lifting up praise or praying to, this is the service of God. And to him shalt thou cleave, you know what that means? Hold tight, don't let him go, hold him fast. Cleave to the Lord thy God. These are your affections, your loyalty, your affiance. Swear by his name. When we swear, we call upon God as a witness. Why is that? Well, there are two reasons why we call God as a witness. One is he can see our hearts. Two is if we don't keep what we say, what will he do? He can punish us. That's why we call upon him. That's why we don't call upon Malcolm, the god of the heathens. That's why we don't call upon the saints. That's why we don't call upon the temple or any other created thing. They can't see our hearts. They can't judge us in the future. But God, he most certainly can and will. He, God says, is thy praise and he is thy God. And the light of all that God requires of us, in the light of his electing grace, in the light of the gospel which perfects nature, in light of God's salvation and provision for you, praise the Lord, he says. He is thy praise. He is thy God. And note verse 22, the fulfillment of the divine promise. Even as he said to Abraham, your seed would be as the stars of the heaven for multitude. How was it? At that day, he says, this has been fulfilled. God is faithful. Believe in his promise. Trust in what he says he will do and walk in his ways. And thus far, Deuteronomy chapter 10.